to my more or less weekly podcast, Lateral Conversations. My name is Thomas Mark. As promised, this uh, episode um, will feature the second conversation I had with um, consciousness researcher, neuropsychologist um, and system theorist uh, Alan Coombs. Alan Coombs is a professor of the California Institute of Integral Studies. And um, we had a very fascinating conversation about stages of cognitive development and uh, their implications uh, on, on politics and the time we are living in now and the crisis and problems we are facing. So the problem we had was that the first five minutes of our conversation somehow of the second conversation get somehow corrupted and to um, offer you an introduction to our conversation i have to say we were talking about the first four stages of cognitive development which were discovered by uh, jean piaget so, and for all of you who don't know who Jean Piaget is or what these kinds of first four stages of development entail, I will read you a short passage from a book um, called Maps of Meaning from Jordan B. Peterson, who is also a psychologist and um, who I thought uh, has, a, has written a, a very clear description of those first four stages of development so I, I will read through the text now um, the game itself at first stages is played at the procedural level the rules remain implicit once a representation of the game has been established then the game game can be shared later the rules themselves can be altered Piaget discusses the formulation of the rules of children's games. Quote, From the point of view of the practice or application of rules, four successive stages of development can be distinguish, distinguished. A first stage of a purely motor or individual character, during which the, ch the child handles the marbles at the dictation of his desires and motor habits. This leads to the formation of more or less ritualized schemas, but since play is still purely individual, one can only talk of motor rules and not of truly collective rules. The second stage may be called egocentric for the following, fo for the following reasons. This stage begins at the moment when the child receives from outside the example of codified rules, that is to say, some time between the ages of two and five. But though the child imitate, imitates this example, he continues to play either by himself without bothering to find playfellows or without others, but without trying to win and therefore without attempting to unify the different ways of playing. In other words, children of this stage, even when they are playing together, play each one on his own and without regard for any codification of rules. This dual character, combining imitation of others with purely individual use of this example received, uh, we have designated by the term egocentrism.
A third stage of development appears between 7 and 8, which we shall call the stage of incipient cooperation. Each player now tries to win and all, therefore begin to concern themselves with the question of mutual control and of unification of the rules. But while a certain agreement may be reached in the course of one game, ideas about the rules in general are still rather vague. In other words, children of 7 to 8 who belong to the same class at school and are therefore constantly playing with each other, give, when they are questioned separately, disparate and often entirely contradictory accounts of the rules observed in playing marbles. Finally, between the years of 11 and 12, appears a fourth stage, which is that of codification of rules. Not only is every detail of procedure in the game fixed, but the actual code of rules to be observed is known to the whole society. There is remarkable concordance in the information given by children of 10 to 12 belonging to the same classes at school when they are questioned on the rules of the game and their possible variations." End quote. So, there you have it. Um, the first five minutes of my conversation with Alan Coombs revolved around those four stages and um, from then on we talked about the later stages and political and cultural implications of that. So um, I hope you will en enjoy this conversation and it sheds some light um, Yes, onto the world we're living in now. So I hope you are all well and you're enjoying the summer and I hope you tune in next time again. So all the best to you. Bye-bye. Uh, my own view is that PHA's work is still very substantial uh, and people have moved on, but uh, his, his work not only formed the ground ground rules for uh, understanding consciousness and evolution consciousness or development i should say yeah uh but the basic structure of how he saw development i think still is very valid now <clears throat> he was uh he was interested in as you know uh he was interested in knowledge how we know things his dissertation was really on epistemology considered himself, I forgot the term he used, but basically a, a working epistemologist. Yes. Uh -huh. He didn't call himself a psychologist at all. Uh, so he wanted to know about the basis of knowledge. And, and so his stuff is all about, uh, it's all cognitive, really. It's about mental operations and how we know about the world. Uh, so it's very logical, it's very systematic. Uh, I think it's still very valid. Now, one of the... Uh, in, in, in overview, uh, one of the uh, things that's, uh, about PHA that's not well known, although it's well known in some circles, is that he continued to think in uh, transpersonal terms later on. Oh, interesting. So he envisioned uh, uh, growth beyond the uh, formal operations. Um, and uh, there's really a book or two about that now. It's, uh, it's just recently come out as, you know, well-known, or at least to a broader audience. But he continued to think about uh, development. 
uh, into what you might today think of as spiritual realms. Uh, I don't know the details of it, but uh, it's it's available. Yes. Uh, Ken has, Wilbur has picked up uh, on the same kind of thinking and expanded it a lot. Uh, although I think when you talk about Ken Wilbur, you have to understand that he is a synthesizer. It's his great skill. So he's a very strong developmentalist, which is why I tend to personally uh, support his work a lot. Uh, but he's uh, now, and has been for years, looking at a broader picture of the whole person, development of the whole person. And, uh, you know, a decade or so, he started talking about lines. Yes. Uh, lines of development. Now, Piaget had understood that. He actually had a term for it that, you know, you could have different skills or different, you know, it could be a mathematical genius, but it wasn't exactly the same thing as being a musical genius, or you could have skill in art, uh, and so on. And, and, but his core idea was intelligence. And intelligence he defined as uh, acquiring knowledge, and it's very uh, cognitive, it's very mental, as I said. Yes. Uh, I don't really consider that a criticism of Piaget. It's what he was interested in, and, and it's what he did. But Ken has, uh, over the last uh, decade or two, gradually swept in uh, and included a lot more. And then, so we get his many lines, uh, each representing a particular skill or type of knowledge. So now he talks about levels and lines. Uh, the structural levels being very close to what Piaget was talking about. Yes. He often talks about a kind of core self uh, or core personality or, or core mind, I think he uses that term. But I, the picture I get from Ken is that as we mature, uh, our intelligence uh, matures and uh, our sense of self and who we are and how we govern ourselves and how we comport ourselves, how we behave, is based a lot on this basic sense of who we are and how we understand ourselves in the world. So that's still a continuation of something very like uh, Piaget. Yes. Uh, but but as, as a synthesizer, what, what Ken Wilber is also doing is um, takes a lot of research from different psychologist, developmental psychologist, and contextualizes the That's right. Uh, That's exactly what he does. So there's like a... He doesn't have his own ideas. I mean, the very fact he can synthesize all these things in a, a working... Uh, in a working whole is, is a great creative act. Yes. yes. But he, he likes to... Uh, <clears throat> He likes to survey whole areas and then bring them together. Yes. So his, you know, the theme for Ken is, as I wrote a chap book chapter about this once, transcendent and clue. So everything is about transcendent and clue, and, and the transcend means get a higher view of the whole the whole situation. Yes. And then include all the parts in a, in a larger image or a larger understanding. I think the, the interesting thing... Um, the interesting thought of Piaget is that um, when you're on a specific stage of development, you right. are you are not actually you, you you do not know exactly what the kind of paradigm or the, the kind of 
problem is with, which comes with that specific state and you have to act it out. And as soon as you act it out and you understand it, you come to a different, more complex, more um, in inclusive stage of development. So Exactly. So. exactly. And that's one of the points Ken makes over and over again in his new book, uh, The Fourth Turning <coughs> in Buddhism. Uh, although the book's hardly limited to Buddhism, uh, this is the point he makes again and again, is that uh, while we uh, are directly aware of states of consciousness, whether you're awake or you're dreaming, uh, you usually know, at least you, you know you're not dreaming when you're awake, and sometimes when you're dreaming, you do know you're dreaming. Uh, if you're in an ecstatic state or a mystical state, you may not understand in detail, but you certainly know you're having an ecstatic experience, so that uh, states of consciousness are immediately obvious to the person that's having them. Uh, but structures are not, they're hidden. And this is, uh, Ken, again and again, uses a metaphor of language. Children learn language. <clears throat> language has rules. And uh, rules of grammar are very complex, and almost no one understands them. I'm not sure anybody really does. Yeah. Uh, would you can can you just for for listeners short shortly elaborate yeah. about those different stages? We talked a little bit about the first four, like uh, how, how they were like modeled by Piaget, but um, there are some stages of adult development. All maybe, right, sure. maybe lead leading up to some transcendent or spiritual stages. Um, I mean, like for example, Sigi uh, Jung. He, in his later books, he talked about that stage where, where everything you see and everything that is, is a representation of yourself. It was like a, like a Buddhist idea of, right. so, so if you could, like. Well, the, uh, for a long time, Ken Wilber and myself have looked at, you know, this larger picture of how the personality unfolds. <clears throat> And that's sort of rooted in PHA's work, but it's, uh, it's much more expansive, especially as the person grows and changes. <clears throat> so if you look, for example, in Ken, Ken's new book, uh, The Religion of Tomorrow, A Vision of the Future of Great Traditions, uh, which is not limited to a religion at all, it's, it's a whole overview. <clears throat> and there's a figure in there, figure six, in which it's just an upgraded, detailed version of the old uh, Wilbur Combs lattice, as a matter of fact. Uh, you see the vertical line goes, uh, he's actually labeled it with Piaget's uh, original stages, sensory motor, infancy, pre-operational young children, uh, actually, and then continuing pre-operational up into concrete operations, uh, this is still childhood, but it's older. Uh, and, uh, and then formal operations, which is what most people, and Piaget himself most of the time, thought of as adult intelligence. Uh, but then Ken takes it on, <clears throat> on up, based on a synthesis of other people's work and his own thinking. Uh, next stage being pluralistic, in which people uh, can understand multiple perspectives. Uh, he maps this, of course, in his book with many other systems. For example, Sri Aurobindo has some similar terms, and uh, other psychologists do. In fact, he, he can usually lists uh, eight or ten of them just for good measure, but pluralistic. So 
<clears throat> not only formal operations in the sense of good logic, but uh, being able to perceive and understand multiple systems of thought. Uh, still, this is uh, what he calls first tier. Uh, and uh, it, people are not able to really completely appreciate the uh, range of other views one might take. So as you begin to move to what he would call second tier, uh, you get what he calls vision logic, low vision logic, high vision logic. But this is a uh, this is really a more integral uh, sort of view in which you can perceive many different perspectives, other people's points of view, cultural differences, and so on. Uh, so that's a very important shift to this second tier. And that's been would you explain shortly what what pluralistic means in in that context? What what does that state entail? Yeah, pluralistic, uh, as I understand it, means that not only do you have all the equipment of uh, formal operations, but uh, now you can see them from different perspectives, so you can understand, for example, how different kinds of thinking or different disciplines scientifically uh, or even different cultures would look at the same thing, uh, and you can compare them so that uh, you appreciate multicultural. This is the one, this is really plural, the pluralistic mind, as he calls it, at this stage, above formal operations, is in spiral dynamics, the green level in which cultural uh, appreciation of other cultures becomes important and realizing the kind of uh, what's really a relativistic view you really realize that other cultures and other views can be valid as well as your own that there are other ways to think about this problem there are other ways to understand values uh, and so on so that's that's pluralistic uh, it's still very much in the realm of uh, rational thought it just uh, is less limited and uh, it's more open to multiple perspectives and it brings people to understanding that there's not such a big difference between you and i uh, and folks in nigeria for example so <clears throat> this is the green meme from spiral dynamics uh the pluralistic mind understanding in a kind of relativistic way uh, multiple points of view from multiple cultures and multiple thinkers and, and appreciating those uh, with value. Uh, the problem, of course, it comes up, and we'll talk about this later probably, is that <clears throat> at this point, uh, a lot of uh, folks in the green level of development uh, tend to see everything as equal. Uh, so, my values are as good as yours. Uh, truth is kind of what you make it. Uh, it's really a kind of rebellion against anything that's absolute or anything that's uh, qualitatively different or yes. as it gets played out in the US a lot, uh, anything that smells of hierarchy uh, is, is viewed as quite evil in this system. <clears throat> so, as Ken points out again and again, <clears throat> the great strides that have been made since the 1960s in uh, cultural liberation and freedom, women's uh, rights, and so on, uh, <clears throat> are all on the positive side, but uh, the system has come to the point of exhausting itself in a way, and that's the 
Yes, be, yes, yes, because because our, as far as I observe it, uh, our society has <clears throat> as a whole shifted a lot to to the left, which is in itself, yes. you can argue, is a good thing because all of those equal rights and and all those values which come with that new stage of development. But on the other side, um, it got a little bit extreme in the last years. To well, yeah, it's gone to the point of not appreciating anything is more valuable than anything else. Uh, so some of the staff at my university told, told the who were very unhappy about something, <clears throat> maybe their salaries, I don't know. Uh, but one of their messages to the faculty is, you, got, you people think you're more important than us. Well, what am I supposed to say? I'm a senior professor with, with awards and books published, and here's a guy, here's a janitor, he's very angry hmm. <clears throat> that uh, it is <clears throat> somehow been suggested that I'm more important than him. Well, I don't know. I thought that's what universities are about. So that's sort of the pluralistic view run to the point where uh, it's very difficult to navigate. <clears throat> and this is, you know, is a major problem in universities today. Yes. Uh, where students feel they have as much to say as the faculty and, uh, uh, you know, they rebel against all sorts of things. And you know, yeah, there's there, was, no... there was a college which was taken hostage more or less by the students like uh, <coughs> two months ago. I'm thinking of Evergreen. I don't know. Yeah, yes, exactly. Mm. No, because um, what what exemplifies the, this problem for me is um, the, the whole gender debate. And Judith Butler, yeah. who, who in, in some ways rightfully says that, for example, uh, gender is completely performative and socially constructed, with this, which is the, this postmodern pluralistic view on things. Right. But right. on the other side, it's completely out. Um, 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 how do you say that? You are blocking those those insights from modernistic science. You yes. know, and so and and this is the problem of first tier that, from my understanding, that. The, the um, one person on one stage can't really understand and see what a person on another stage is doing or, or conceptualizing. Well, that's an interesting point. And in terms of uh, moral development, you know, Lawrence Kohlberg is the person who uh, really developed uh, and researched uh, uh, moral development in children and adults uh, very deeply at, at Harvard. In fact, uh, what's her name? The lady you mentioned uh, when we first logged on, a uh, mutual friend that you were talking to. Elizabeth DeBolt. Yeah, Elizabeth DeBolt. She's, uh, her, her graduate work at, at Harvard was very much related to, to these issues. Uh, and very much related to whether there's a difference between uh, the way men develop uh, their moral stages, uh, ethical stages, and the way women do. I mean, she did her dissertation with this uh, famous lady. I'm very bad with names, by the way. <laughs> yeah, he wrote a book called In a Different Voice. Uh, yes. <clears throat> that was widely read and, and examined uh, ethics in men and women. She found some differences. 
uh, I find this whole idea of the flat uh, world in this sense, gender world is, is a little disturbing because certainly there are uh, real contributions that women uh, make that men just aren't going to make, I don't think. I'm working on a book right now with a previous uh, student, now a colleague, uh, looking at feminist uh, poets uh, in the United States, people like Emily Dickinson, for example. But we're also looking at Virginia Woolf, British poet, uh, poetess. And I mean, these women had deep, deep understandings of the world. And uh, they, they see it from a perspective that I think is uh, uniquely feminine, and so does my colleague who's done her dissertation on Emily Dickinson. So uh, just to try to rub these away, I think that tendency to just kind of flatten everything and say there's just no difference is, is kind of past now. Uh, but, you know, the problem is exactly what you're saying, that people interpret these from different levels. Yes. So, for example, if you're... Uh, completely pluralistic green, if you're completely green, you really jump on this as saying, well, there's no difference at all. Uh, I remember a copy of Ms. Magazine from the late 60s with a number of men standing at urinals, you know, uh, relieving themselves from behind, and one of them's a woman. <laughs> no difference. Uh, I think, you know, we've kind of moved beyond that, but then there's this problem of... Uh, uh, you know, at the lower stages, which is where the majority of people are, either orange or, you know, blue or whatever it's called now, amber, uh, <clears throat> when people see there a different, there's a difference, they immediately carry that uh, into practical uh, application in inappropriate places. My, my wife is uh, involved in local politics. Uh, she's on the city council, for example. And uh, people that are at uh, concrete operations or, you know, the amber or orange level, they read something about differences in men and women and their average performances on math tests or something like that. And the next thing you know, <clears throat> they're wanting to make rules about this that yep. uh, uh, don't pay women as much or exclude them from being hired. Was it the... Uh, uh, one of the presidents of Google that just a few days ago uh, really got himself in hot water by saying that uh, it was one of these people that uh, there was a genetic difference, that programming was something men do better than women or something. Uh, I won't comment on the truth of that statement, but it, my point is the way it's being taken uh, is, is far too literal. <laughs> and uh, Sure. Mm -hmm. So there, there's this problem of, of, of equality and relative, relativistic um, values coming in on one level, uh, the, the green meme, for example, but being interpreted from the majority of people at lower levels and put to work in very inappropriate kinds of ways. Yes. Uh, so I don't know. Am I drifting here? Let's, let's get back. No, no, it's, it's very interesting. I'm, I've, I've read something a couple of days ago um, from Jonathan Haidt. I don't know if you know him. It's a, it's a social scientist and a, a psychologist. What's the name again? Um, Jonathan Haidt. And he, I've heard of him. Um, and, and I guess it was him. And he was talking about, um, he called it the difference between PC egalitarianism 
like po political correctness and PC authoritarianism. So and you, you have um, on one side the, the <coughs> classical left open uh, person which is, has high uh, verbal cognitive abilities and it's like try, try to include minorities and, and try to include right. different perspectives in a way. Um, whereas uh, as an authoritarian, um, you get easily offended and you, you act out like being a police cop. Um, you have like a, um, your, your verbal cognitive ability is, is less than, than an egalitarianism. And, right. and um, yeah, he differentiates between those two extremes on, 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 on the pluralistic green meme, basically. And yes. I, found it, I, I found it very helpful for, yeah, for our culture now, you know, what, what, what is happening. And yeah. Well, Jen points this out in his recent writings, too, that <clears throat> uh, it's interesting. The, uh, there are two sides to each, each to the green and to the, to the orange. Uh, the orange being the referring to rational formal operations. And there's a liberal side and a conservative side. And the liberal side uh, sort of bumps into some of the pluralistic values of the green. <clears throat> so in the US, the Republican Party have two branches of it. You have the Wall Street Republicans uh, who are pretty much progressive in, in uh, rationally very capable and, and non-superstitious, but then you have uh, Republicans that are really amber or even lower that have mythic values and, and so on. Mm. <clears throat> so the uh, conservative party is split in half. And same thing with the Democrats. You have uh, progressive Democrats who are reaching up uh, through the pluralistic uh, mind to uh, perspectives uh, that include uh, lots of people from many places, but you also have the, uh, the more uh, conservative ones that in some sense are what Ken calls the mean green. They're, they're the, the, the policing ones. Yes. And get stuff in a lot of trouble with them if you use the wrong phrase or something. Exactly. Uh, Ken talks about the fact that <clears throat> Most of the leading comedians uh, in the U.S. who used to make a living going to college campuses won't go on college campuses anymore. Uh, not only because they get criticized for making jokes about people and things, but uh, because these uh, politically correct students uh, have no sense of humor. <laughs> exactly. It's they're just serious and, and you can offend them easily, but they don't seem to have a sense of humor. Yeah. Well, hello, the Dalai Lama laughs all the time. All I have to do is listen to him. He's got a sense of humor. He doesn't get offended easily. He may disagree with you, but he's not going to pout about it. Uh, so this is, uh, yeah, this is part of the problem, I think. So how does how does Donald Trump um, fit into all of this and, and all all of this? Because I mean, this this pluralistic stage developed. You said it in the '60s, more or less, uh, like with postmodernity yeah. and and with cultural relativism, social constructivism, and all <coughs> all those things. And and I I have heard like in in the in the U.S. and the universities, the ratio between 
conservative professors and 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 liberal professors in the humanities is now 41 to one basically so the whole campus shifted to to the left and right. and um we have this policing of speech and of behavior and and then comes a figure like trump so yes uh, <clears throat> well uh, yeah well, one of the things that Ken points out, and I don't know whether it's true or not, but he thinks it is, and he argues for it in detail, <clears throat> is that once 10% of the population shift into the next level up, uh, their values and thoughts begin to sift down and have dramatic influence on the next level down. And so that's why he's optimistic, uh, as a matter of fact, about the future. But... Uh, when uh, people began to shift in the 60s and really the children in the 60s uh, up to the green level, uh, at first their values shifted down, especially at the universities. And so by today, they basically run the universities. Uh, and as you point out, in the humanities especially, uh, virtually all the faculty represent this uh, pluralistic or relativistic mind. Uh, but of course, Ken's point, <clears throat> and I agree with him, is that uh, it's been carried to a ridiculous extreme. That is, no one's ideas are better than anyone else. I heard a well-known professor recently comment to his students, for example, that science is just another language. Uh, hey. <laughs> That's a little disturbing to me. I started as a physics major, and I actually believe there's more than just another language involved. But that's that's very typical. Uh, yeah, but this is this is going on since the '60s. The the assault on science, you know, and and you see it yeah. here in, in Germany as well. As soon as you get into a, a conversation or a discussion, and and um, you you try to make a point by citing a scientific fact. Um, the, the, the next thing which happens with 80% chance is, yeah, um, you haven't read uh, Thomas Kuhn and the paradigm thing, and that means uh, scientific research and scientific facts aren't value anymore. So, but this, this is not what Thomas Kuhn said, but it is laid out in that way, you know? No, it's not at all what Thomas Kuhn said. Uh, you're more likely to get Something, uh, I mean, if we're, you're in a serious conversation from Derrida or Foucault, uh, that reduces it all to language. And then it's just a matter of language. And these people are using this different language and uh, doesn't have any real traction in the physical world. In fact, who knows if there is a phys <laughs> physical world. Uh, so as Ken says, the whole thing begins to slide and it tends to deteriorate over time into uh, just plain narcissism. It's a very strange move, but it seems to be what happens. Uh, when there are no values, then people begin to just think about themselves and what they would like. So Ken points out, at least in the U.S., that the children of the 60s were in some ways the me generation. They were associated with... Uh, not only all these positive qualities that go with the green meme, uh, but they're all about themselves more than their predecessors. You know, I've been watching movies lately for some strange reason about World War II. Uh, for example, this one that just came out called Dunkirk. Oh, wonderful Dunkirk. movie. Yes, good movie. 
Yeah, well, look, my father and his generation were the people that fought that war, and they all went down and signed up. I mean, the whole fraternity, the whole sorority just went down and lined up. We're, we want to help. We're going to do our part. Well, you know, that's uh, such a different uh, such a different mindset <clears throat> than the 60s generation. Of course, that's, I'm a member of them. And we what, were your father was a dumb cook, or what, what are you saying? Oh, I'm saying that the people who fought uh, okay. uh, in, in the Second World War yes. uh, from the U.S. and Britain and France, <clears throat> they were willing to volunteer and lose their lives if they needed to because they had such a strong belief in the values yes. of the culture. Uh, and they wanted to fight fascism. Uh, by the time it came to us, uh, my generation, the 60s generation, the only war that was going on, at least for the U.S., was Vietnam. Well, nobody wanted to sign up for that. Nobody really believed in it. The values didn't seem to be worthwhile anyway. In fact, most of us still considered a big mistake. <clears throat> so our generation uh, is often characterized as much more self-centered and selfish than the generation of the 30s and 40s. Uh, but yet, as Ken points out over and over again, Uh, our generation, the generation of the 60s, was nothing as uh, like as self-centered as the current generation of young people. The selfie generation, you might call it. The people with all taking pictures of themselves all the time and very narcissistic. Uh, and the research shows, at least in the U.S., that they have a lot of confidence in themselves, thinking they are special people. Uh, it's really a problem in school because uh, even from high school, but especially in college, Uh, this generation, uh, the X or Y generation, whatever it's called now, uh, really uh, consider themselves special people. Privilege. It's a matter of privilege. And they often will apply for jobs. They have no, uh, for example, executive positions that they have no credentials for whatsoever. But they're privileged. Their 60s generation parents told them they were special, treated them like they were special. And now they think they're special. So uh, this is all part of the big picture as Ken sees it. It's really interesting. He sees culture as almost like a living organism. Yeah. I've never read anybody quite like him. So <clears throat> he... I was, I was, I was sorry, I'm, I'm wondering because you mentioned the Second World War. And yeah. um, for, uh, uh, wars are fought uh, by, by young people people and young men especially so and and in a way some it has something to do also with testosterone you know you, you know, <laughs> no and, and 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 i'm wondering if, all, if, yeah. if 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 those so, social justice warriors you know the, who are on the extreme left with the um right. the radical yeah. left if if they are driven by testosterone as well and if so wouldn't that be a like a paradox that you know with 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 the gender question everything is equal but they are themselves driven to to argue for that because of their testosterone well let's come back to the testosterone <laughs> but uh but I, i do you do bring up something that ken writes about at some length in his recent books and that is that this point of view is self-contradictory, not only self-serving, but self-contradictory. 
I, I believe, let's say, I believe I'm one of these PC warriors. I believe that all values are equal and all people are equal and all points of view are equal. Well, wait a minute. I believe this for all people in all places. Well, that's self-contradictory, if you see what I mean. This is uh, delivered as an absolute edict, and yet the edict is that no values are better than the others. So it's you know it's a, it's a contradiction in, in terms. Uh, but where were we about testosterone? No, we well, do. Yep. It's interesting that the real warriors <clears throat> uh, are often not so high developmentally. Uh, I remember back in the, all the way back when I was a young man, and uh, you know I had quite a bit of testosterone, I guess. And uh, this is when the first uh, demonstrations and marches were taking place on the uh, uh, on the racial issue. This was when Martin Luther King was active, for example. And I was a graduate student. I said, I'm going to go down and join those people. I'm going to go on the march with them. I mean, I had friends who did. Uh, you know, risk their lives in a way by marching through the deep south. And so I was going to join them. So I went down. I spent a day or two with them. And I just found them uh, people I just didn't want to be with because they were adamantly true believers. And, and they weren't green. They were down there in amber or red somewhere. And they were going to fight the evil empire. And, yep. uh, I, you know, even though their cause was just, uh, the personality mesh between myself, who was green, bordering on teal at least by that point, uh, and these people who had a single set. And so that's part of the problem, I think, that some of the, as you call them, PC warriors are not so advanced. They've adopted a value system they want to fight for, and they're not going to fight, uh, you know, it's not like saying World War, that these aren't noble values in the sense those were, I guess. They sound good on the surface, but then you carry them out uh, at a lower level. Uh, so, and, and then, you know, it creates a kind of internal war. I remember it was a year ago at Berkeley, there was a demonstration and the uh, Berkeley campus police were shooting tear gas into the eyes of students. Well, I don't know what level those students were at, but it was just amazing, and uh, I went to court and everything else, and I think the policeman himself was apologetic later, but, you know, so you had a confrontation there between the conservative reigns, or maybe they were probably orange, strong believers, and maybe even amber, uh, but here comes the police, uh, they're down there in red or blue, I mean, they're absolutely you know they're taking directions exactly we had we had um also a year ago uh at the university of magdeburg there was supposed to be a professor talking about the biological roots of gender and mm. and and basically what happened was that the students were raiding the university you know and and when you see those the videos of that event and shut the tone off um, yeah there's no so, so much difference to the to what happened like you know 70 years ago you know it's like the the same frenzy no i believe you interesting that's interesting yeah so so but now so we we are in a culture where all this is basically okay where something like that can occur where we where we shifted to to the left and and then that weird thing happened that Donald Trump got elected. But Donald Trump is not 
liberal in, in that sense. It's, he's not pluralistic. So how, how do you account for, for that thing to happen from, from your perspective, like as an American and as a de developmentalist? Well, there have always been a lot more conservative people around at the lower levels than those of us at the leading edge <laughs> uh, have been aware of. Mm. Uh, for example, the town I used to live in, uh, in, where I taught for years and years, a little town in North Carolina, U.S., uh, is well known for being liberal. <clears throat> uh, we have a substantial gay community. We have a multicultural community there and so on. Uh, so I remember 10, 15 years ago, we had a gay pride parade. A lot of people came out and there was a parade and so on downstairs, downtown. Uh, hundreds of people actually and the very next weekend the whole street was lined up with uh, the churches the fundamentalist churches they're having their traditional values parade and there were thousands of them and you know it's like where do these people come from well there's always been a lot of talk about the silent majority and they're not silent anymore the silent majority are, are fairly conservative and um mainly frustrated in the U.S., especially through what's called the Rust Belt, the, the old factory uh, zones, the Midwest and uh, the Northeast, a lot of it, people out of work, uh, they're poor, the, the, the whole thing's gone sour on them, they, you know, their, their parents were, worked in factories and made a good income and the children were supposed to be better, but instead the children don't have a job. Um, so we have a lot of frustrated people uh, there was a theme, by the way, there was a movie about 10 years ago called Fight Club, in which oh, yes. uh, Brad Pitt actually gives a lecture about this. We're the generation that we're promised this and that and this and that, and we got nothing. Uh, so a lot of frustrated people, and these frustrated people are not operating at the highest level, culturally or intellectual. In fact, it's always been the fact that uh, in the U.S. at least, it's the greatest racial discrimination in terms of groups has been in poor uneducated people in, in the South, the financially poor, uneducated, and that's where, you know, that's where the most intense racial hatred generates. Uh, so here comes Trump, and he just, uh, he, he, he kind of epitomizes anger for people. And uh, yeah, we're sick of it. Now I'm going to fix it. And we're going to fix you. We're going to get you jobs again. We're going to make the world, we're going to make America great again. And all this kind of crazy. I mean, but he, he falls into the spectrum of con conservatism. But uh, well, he's more than conservative. He's, uh, yes, you know. and I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm wondering because, like, um, you know, I, I don't think that conservatism in and itself is a bad thing. You, you need both no. voices. You know, yeah. you, you need liberal voices, you need uh, conservative voices to have like a creative dialogue about how to deal with important issues. But, but Trump is something else. He's like... He's something else. You have to look, to begin with, he's always been a talk show guy, hmm. entertainer in a way. Uh, he knows how to get in the public eye, he knows how to manipulate the media. He's done a lot of that, aside from being a, a billionaire. And... Uh, he knows how to appeal to the masses. I, you know, he's a, he's a very scary guy to the real conservatives, the Republicans, because they have no control over him. 
Hmm. He's generally considered by psychologists to be a uh, narcissistic personality disorder. And uh, in fact, the American Psychological Association, who has always been conservative and don't say things about public figures, has now said publicly that they uh, believe that it's okay to talk about Trump and his <laughs> diagnosis. Uh, he's not a normal guy. He lies, 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 you know, 15, 20 times a day. Uh, and that's where you get to the point where truth doesn't mean anything. Yeah. And that's Ken Wilber's analysis is that by the time you get relativism going so far that no value is any better than any others, and then what I say is no better than what you say, well, the next step after that is just make it up. That, uh, that, that would be my next question. And, and so how, how much is the left and the radical left uh, responsible for the emergence of, of Donald Trump and to become a president? Well, they're strongly uh, responsible and, and uh, in, in ways that they don't realize. <clears throat> This strong PC movement, especially among college professors, has just become more and more offensive to the masses of the American people. You can't say this, you can't say that. Uh, we're tired of our kids, middle-class kids, getting rejected from first-rate colleges so that People of color who are less qualified can be uh, accepted to meet our ratios. Uh, I'm not saying this is good or bad, but a lot of ordinary people, uh, not the liberal, very liberal people, are just sick of it. Uh, and uh, and the economy is no good. So you put those two together. Here's a guy who is openly critical of PC. He, You know, he does all kinds of offensive things and just carries on. And yet he got an incredible numbers of votes, even from women, even from educated women. It's amazing. Uh, after the awful things he publicly said and did about women, but people were so angry uh, about the world uh, that they live in. And suddenly he's going he's gonna to fix it, even if you can't believe a thing he says. Hmm. Uh, you notice his, uh, right now, as we talk, his uh, popularity, his acceptance rate, his approval rate among the American people is down to 30%. This is way, 30%, way, 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 way under any president, any time in history. And there's a lot of talk of uh, who's, how, what they're going to do about it. And, 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 There's a lot of talk of impeachment even. In fact, if we didn't have a Republican Congress, uh, it's pretty clear that uh, Democrats would be much more active in trying to get him out of the office. Of course, the thing that scares people is the person he picked as a vice president is a real fundamentalist. And his solution to health care is that you need to get back to church. So he would be the next president if Trump is impeached. So it's a, it's a bad situation. Yeah, I, I only fear that I've, I've read an article in the Atlantic uh, a couple of days ago, and the the, the main theme was um, behind all that noise and chatty, he uh, he actually gets things gets things done, like the uh, legal immigration numbers are down and and whatnot. So and and that makes me fearful for like what when is the next election 2020 it's like no no he's gotten a lot done behind the scenes he's an expert at uh 
creating, with all the nonsense he says in his tweets, he's an expert at getting in the front of the news over big issues that he can't do anything about. And in the meantime, he's pulling the stops on all of these uh, important small issues uh, that aren't so small about health care and uh, equality and so on and, and immigration. And he's, he's slipping these things through because they're not, somehow he, he's a master of the media. Yeah. You so, no, go ahead. Um, you mentioned that that uh, paper from Ken Wilber, um, Trump and the the post uh, fact world. Yeah, yeah, he's published a book on Amazon now. It's a shorter book. And yes, the same and, thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that book, he he mentioned that how how the pendulum swim, swings back from extreme leftism to to extreme conservatism and, and Trump basically yeah. and and. Uh, and I'm, I'm I'm was wondering because like from 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 a psychometrics point of view, um, there's like I don't know how much I'm, I've read something about it. And so so the, from from a psychometrics viewpoint, there's um, a tendency within us that we strive to new experiences and in a way to chaos and to new forms of experience while there's another tendency to um, by which we strive to stability and order to make it right. right. So, and, I, and I'm wondering if, if you could use that model to, to account for, for that, uh, for, for what's happening because with, with the left, there's a tremendous movement to new experience to, to, um, Close, to open borders, maybe personally made nationwide, financially. So, and, and it, it got too much into chaos because of the tremendous openness. And now yeah. swimming, swinging back and the people have a need for, 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 for stability, for order, for closed borders in a way. You know what I'm, what I'm talking about? Well, yeah, I think there's truth to that. And the, you know, part of that picture is uh, very much economic, I'm sure, in the British and conservative movements in France. And so again and again, you see people are trying to get organized to protect their crops and sell, selling their products uh, from the world market. And, and one of the big criticisms of Clinton and uh, his administration were the, uh, were the treaties he signed that allowed goods to cross borders without tariffs and so on, especially with uh, Middle and South America. Uh, and people feel this really undercut local prices. And I get this sort of, sort of thing in France too. There are groups of uh, regions where people don't want to be part of the common market because they can sell stuff and they can do stuff in-house uh, uh, close to home been doing it for centuries and now all of a sudden people are selling stuff from the Netherlands or who knows what and undercutting them. So, uh, yeah, one of Trump's big deals is close the borders. He claims he's going to build this wall, you know, between us and Mexico. It's yeah. just outrageously silly, but he's putting money into it. Yeah. Uh, so people feel more secure somehow if you can build walls. It's a kind of medieval mentality, of course, but there it is. Do you think? But there's another aspect of this I did want to really touch on because I, I see how much more time do we have? We have as much time as you, as you like. Oh, well, okay. Well, I have a little more time. Uh, well, can I bring up something relevant to this uh, that's a little different? Sure, of course. 
Well, a number of theorists, including Andrew Cohen, uh, a few years ago, and still, I guess, uh, and Ken Wilber and uh, others, and he really, if you go back to Berson and uh, Thierry de Chardon and some of the people from 100 years ago, or 70 years ago, or whatever, uh, view evolution as something that's impelled uh, sort of pushed forward by some kind of almost spiritual energy for Bergson, it was the Elan Vitel. Uh, Andrew Cohen called it, uh, what did he call it? Eros, and that's what Ken calls Eros. Uh, it's related to erotic, but it's, it's more than that. It's a kind of an energy in the cosmos that drives evolution. Uh, also, Irvin Laszlo, who's a major thinker, I think, in look at his recent books he has one coming out not quite out yet that in which he views the whole cosmos as uh, operating under the principles of uh, almost a living being and you know he's a genius it's it's amazing this is in some ways a lifetime work uh Irvin Laszlo if you look he's, he's written like 200 books <laughs> anyway I won't go on about Irvin but the point is uh, that what the way Ken talks about these social changes is he sees them as somehow, he sees society almost like a single organism and that it's going through evolutionary changes that are impelled by this kind of arrows, this kind of force from behind. And his whole point uh, in both of these recent works is that uh, the present, present chaos is the result of a blind wrong turn in social evolution, which pushed this, uh, these great ideas from the uh, green meme from the 60s and forward of equality and justice and so on, pushed them beyond any reasonable limit. Uh, in, in fact, uh, in fact, young Gebser, uh, late in his life, said he didn't believe in postmodernism. He thought it was just modernism gone gone wrong. And so I think there's some truth to that. So the point is that this was an evolutionary movement starting in the 60s. It was very healthy when it got started. Women's rights, everybody's rights, the end of uh, oppression as best we could do. And it's just gone, it's gone overboard. And so it's, it's gone, it's sort of taken a blind turn in the direction of not, no values meaning anything and eventually just narcissism. So Ken's idea is that this, uh, this uh, impetus uh, for evolution, uh, the, uh, the arrows, has not gone away. That we're still in an evolutionary trend, but it's what's happened is the whole system is backed up and sort of rebooting. <laughs> That's the way he looks at it. It's an optimistic point of view. I hadn't really thought about it, uh, but it's like an organism has evolved to, uh, you know, there are birds. Uh, and other creatures, but there's a particular bird that has, uh, in its mating ritual, the males have got these big feathers like peacocks, and the bigger the feathers, the more colorful, the more likely they are to mate. But they've reached an evolutionary point with the growth of these beautiful big displays that predators can just grab them and eat them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so this isn't working out too well for them. So are you saying that that the, the current chaos in which we... Well, well, let me just finish my story yeah. about this bird. Uh, if enough predators eat this bird, uh, only the ones that are 
in the sense regressive will be around and and so in terms of evolution they're going to have to start over and that's what ken believes yes that's what ken believes is that society is uh, taking a back step with all this and if we don't destroy the world first uh we'll we'll have to start over in a more balanced way so that's that's the only optimistic thing I know about this whole situation, and it's so important in his thinking. I just wanted to be sure and mention. Yes. No, I, I wanted to go in that direction as well. So do you think the, the current chaos in which we dwell is some form of growing pains to um, move to a second-tier stage, like the yeah. autonomous or integral or whatever name you call it, like the stage where you can look beyond your bias, may it be like liberal or conservative? Well, that's a good point. That's the, that's the other point Ken makes, especially in his recent book, the one about the religion of the future, is that he says, and I don't really know enough about this to tell you it's my own opinion, but I'm Ken's brighter than I am, so let's just go with that. Uh, he says when you get 10% that are shifted, it sifts down, and then in time the whole leading edge shifts. And that's what he saw happen in the uh, 60s, and that's what's happened more recently. And he says right now almost 10% of the people have moved uh, beyond the, the, the low vision logic into high vision logic or even what he calls the fourth tier. Um, up into the aluminum mine. In other words, they, they, that what's unique about this 10%, and this is real, related to our talk about Piaget and structures, is that when you get to this point, you actually begin to understand your own structure, developmental structure. Uh, that's why he emphasizes meditation. It's so dramatically important. His book on meditation is wonderful. As you begin to see because I started mentioning this a while ago, structures, the mental structures that we operate under, like these very concrete operations, formal operations, they're like rules of language. Well, know how to speak. We know the rules uh, implicitly, but we can't tell anybody. And we don't, most of the time, know what set of rules we're operating from. And we don't have any way to examine them because they're not obvious. They're, they're internal. So this next stage, the fourth turning, the 10% that are coming online now that he thinks will have dramatic influence in the future uh, are folks who have some sense of what their own structure is. That is, they're able to think about themselves in, in the kind of way you might think about somebody else. If you begin to see what your internal uh, way of seeing the world is, you begin to operate from that point of view. And it's a much more integral state. So you begin to see, remember, it's always transcend and include. So at this stage, people can, you can appreciate different cultures uh, and different cultural views and different values and different genders, you know, male, female, transgender. And you don't see them, it's just, oh yes, I'm a liberal green and I accept them, they're different, and so that we're all different. But really begin to integrate them. Oh yes, they're, they're, they're us. They're like us. We have so much in common. Uh, we're part of a community of people with different values and different, you know, genders and so on. So that's a, that's that's a very optimistic shift. And if Ken's right, and the world holds together, it will have the next big dramatic change, and it will replace the present relativism and nihilism that seems to dominate the leading edge of the culture. And of course, 
his point is that if there is a successful leading edge, then we won't have stuff like Trump because Trump came along because the leading edge failed. Uh, this postmodern relativism PC simply burned out and yeah. nobody pressed with it anymore. And then went out and, invite, and elected a president here in the U.S. who was openly and dramatically opposed to it. And, you know, there was something like that went on in England, too. It was the same basic dynamics. That's and very close in France. We were so relieved that the recent election in France didn't bring forward another person like this. So, so that's so, what I want to say. So the, the, what, what I... If I if I, if I want to summarize that the, the that new stage of development is not only that that you can acknowledge all, all those previous stages in right what, and integrate them that's the yeah, important what, what, yeah what 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 their contribution is you know and um, yes so uh, but, but also that you like, represent you become all those stages you embody all those stages you know exactly. And that you understand that you are like in a in a developmental circle. In yeah. A, this, yeah. Those two things basically it's um, are like the elements of of those new second tier stage, mm -hmm. which is emerging. <laughs> yes. Are you waiting for me to say something? No, I just wanted to su summarize it. Okay, so yeah, no, that's good. I agree. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I, I don't know. I mean, do do you see already? Um, because for me, it's not only when when you look back and 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 at at those times where a new stage of development appeared. At, at, right. You, you 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 did not only see persons. Or individuals, but you you saw little groups. I mean, it happened in uh, like uh, beginning of the 20th century with with the uh, with the uh, uh, quantum phys physicists, right? And, and with the uh, with the Dadaist movement and and the uh, the writers, the American writers in Paris, which were mm -hmm. all like forbearers of postmodernity, you know. And so right. there were like groups emerging. With a new worldview, with a new understanding in arts and science and philosophy. So, can you do you observe kind of those groups of a of a new stage, right? Acting. Well, now? that's a good question. Uh, you know, I'm not. Uh, I'm old, <laughs> and I'm not really wired to the new groups. But mm -hmm. I see that in my part of the world, San Francisco, uh, there are lots of groups. I have a, a friend who uh, is a, a guy from MIT, young man, uh, who's a Buddhist, yep. uh, and does uh, works a lot on uh, what's called transformative technology. For example, a pair of glasses you can put on and you'll be able to see up in the corner what your blood pressure is, uh, all sorts of things like that, uh, and give you feedback. Uh, he he and, He's very interested in those, but he's also a Buddhist. And he started an uh, uh, organization in San Francisco called uh, Buddhist Geeks. Oh. You think the term geek. So uh, that's a new term for nerds, I guess. Buddhist <laughs> Geeks. And, you know, there's well over 100 of them. And these are all technically sophisticated people that get together at least once a month uh, for meditation. They have retreats. Uh, seriously, seriously. 
uh, practitioners of uh, Buddhism, not not doctrinal, but you know, they meditation. They use a lot of technology, so that's one group, and there are a lot of other groups. Uh, it's hard to gauge just what level they're at. You know, some of them are pretty well uh, green, and then we have in our part of the world we have lots of teachers. Uh, you can decide for yourself whether you know how, uh, but they have groups around. So I do see a lot of groups forming, and Ken Wilber uh, in you know, just personal conversation talks about groups around the Boulder area uh, that he's familiar with. So I think this is going on, uh, whether it'll catch on or how important it is, I don't know. You know, I live in a very unusual place, Marin County, San Francisco, I mean, we're sort of the center of the uh, world for, <laughs> for this sort of thing. Uh, and I see there's a talk on Orobindo at the uh, at the uh, Cross Cultural Center in San Francisco uh, this weekend uh, on Orobindo. And this was, uh, I've forgotten the exact name of the place, but it's still there. find it very quickly. Uh, this was a place where all the uh, gurus came oh. in the 60s. Muktananda, you name it. They all came to this place, stayed a few days, and then traveled around. Uh, so this is sort of the uh, the bus stop for uh, <laughs> spiritual uh, people coming. I I think uh, I think Andrew Cohn was the only East Coast member of the club. The rest oh, yeah? of them were all out here, because, <laughs> and, and in fact, his followers mostly moved out here immediately when he left. So. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, what's his name? Uh, runs his own operation now on Awakening Online. He's got hundreds, if not thousands, of followers. He used to be the editor of uh, Enlightenment. What is Enlightenment, as a matter of fact? Uh, worked closely with, uh, what's her name, Jane, we just mentioned. And anyway. I, 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 you mean Thomas Steininger? No. No. But anyway, we're getting into uh, <laughs> yes. because of spiritual geography here. We don't need to go into that. Yeah. No, I I I think we 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 covered all the the, the important things. I, I I think. Um. I think it's very important to know where we are in our times. Yeah, I and, I agree. And and to know um, what our tasks are and 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 the and the problems we have to face and, and that we not co can condemn uh, Republicans or conservatives or even Trump, but to find a way to integrate all, all those things. Because as, as I said, I, I think every stage has and every temperament has something worthwhile and something important right. to listen to and, right. and to, to learn. And we can't, we can't, um, um, rely solely on our own worldview anymore. So we have- Well, well that's really Ken's point of view. Mm. People are surprised that he's not more liberal because he, <laughs> he does try to include, transcend and include. Exactly. So, and, and but, but how, how will that manifest if, you, if you're second tier, if you like on, on that in integral stage, um, how, how would that manifest politically? Have, do you have any, any idea? Because then you can't really well, 
when you get enough people that are going to vote, uh, it can manifest politically. Remember our uh, governor of California, Brown, mm. very liberal. Uh, he was voted out of office, and they brought him back again. He's, he's commonly called Mr. Moonbeam <laughs> here. Uh, but he represents, uh, I think, if not that 10%, he's very close to it. Well, uh, of course, this is part of the population that uh, is very liberal uh, and progressive in, in a lot of different ways. But mm. uh, when you get enough people that have crossed that border, uh, these are very, I think it's worthwhile to mention, these are highly influential people. People that get to this level of development uh, tend to be influential. Uh, they tend to be effective. I had a conversation about this with Ken one time. He said, you know, one of these people is more effective in society than five or ten of the ones underneath or more because they tend to be active and they tend to be intelligent. They tend to be effective. They tend to be socially effective. So you don't need a majority of them. Uh, my wife is on the city council here, and it's a fairly conservative city council, as a matter of fact, and she is the progressive. Oh, okay. And even though she is the progressive on the council, she has probably 40% of the city population strongly supporting her, even though she's only one of five members. It's yep. because people that have something honest and real to say uh, and are intelligent uh, are, are a point of attraction. People are interested. And we've heard the other stuff enough. Uh, so uh, that's that's my optimistic assessment. Well, I'm no political uh, savant, that's for sure. <laughs> this is what I would like to believe. And this is essentially what Ken argues. And as I said, he's smarter than I am. So I'll just leave it at that. Ellen, I think we got it for today. Great. Thank, well, you. thank you very much. And in a couple of years or so, if we see that we could have another good conversation. Yeah, we can see how it all turned out, I guess. Yes. If, yeah. if, right. uh, if Donald uh, Trump doesn't um, make his threats with uh, nuclear weapons, oh, like a reality, then, then we... <laughs> Don't go there. No. There's a whole other conversation. Yeah. Good. Ellen, thank you again for taking the time to talking to me and be, be a guest on this well, podcast. Thank you too.